0: Grab your Bible again, we're looking at Psalms 31, God speaks it to us, he works by his spirit through his words we want to understand what he says, we want to see him shaping our lives Uh, so let's ask him to work that in us. Father please do help us to uh, focus and give attention, Uh, please do help us to hear you speak. And please do tune our heads and hearts to reality as we hear your word. In the Lord Jesus, Amen. Our Savior calls us to see ourselves as servants. He persuades us to spend ourselves for the good of others. He shows us what's good, He teaches us to see all humans. Uh, made in God's image, therefore with equal value and dignity and worth. He calls us to love willingly, to forgive generously, to serve wholeheartedly. Now, personally and historically, Christ's people have failed to live what he calls us to. The story of history and the story of our lives includes wounds inflicted and good left undone. But the joy of the gospel is forgiveness and grace-bought and spirit-empowered motivation to love others as we love ourselves. God's love for us opens our hearts to love others, to love without limits, to love not just one another, but people like us, people who aren't like us, people who don't even like us. Not that we do it perfectly. We're a long way from that. But in our clearer moments, we're convinced that it would be good if God's work in us was finally done. If sin was in the past, if we lived completely and wholeheartedly to please Christ with the thoughts and ethics and priorities that he sets before us. It would be good if we were more Christian in the way we think and speak and act. So it can throw us when people think it isn't. It can be disorienting when what Christians think and what Christians do when we're most lined up with what God says in his Bible. It can be disorienting when that's described as bad. Now, if you're curious but not yet committed uh, to Jesus, well, perhaps you've seen our struggle with this. If you've gone all, all in with Jesus, I'm guessing that in the past year, you, you've sat on the edge of a conversation at work or around school where people have spoken their anger about what Christians think. Or you've watched a character in a story take, spot, take pot, shot, pot shots at the, uh, what Christians think in the gospel. Or you've had a conversation with a non-Christian friend which has left you with that sinking feeling in your stomach that they think people like you are bad. That they think people like us are the bad guys. It was easier when they thought we were missing out on on the good life uh, uh, by holding on to ancient ideas But now their story says the Bible and people who believe it are against what's best for humans. When we speak what it says, we're trying to hold people back from what would be truly good for them. That we're hurting them in the process. How do we cope? How do we cope when even friends are starting to think we're the bad guys? How do we pray? I think Psalm 31 helps us. So so let's look at it. Let's then look at how Jesus drew on it as he hung in shame. And then think about the light that it shines on us. Psalm 31 moves from anguish prayer to confident praise. It does it twice. Verses one to eight and then verses 19 to 22 follow a similar path. anguish prayer, confident praise. It seems best to hear the first section as an outline, and then uh, David going back and going through the same thing again. Uh, this I'm remembering one experience. That it outlines it and then begins again, uh, filling in more detail the second time through. Now, we could try and figure out what experience and books are read, they try to do it, but what enemy is David talking about in verse 8? What siege lines up with verse 21? But really, it's just guesswork. He doesn't give us the detail because that's not what he's on about. What he's on about is telling us his experience in order to help us with similar experiences. David brings us uh, into his prayer and into his praise in order to finish by saying verses 23 and 24. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. He abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. David shares his anguished prayer in the midst of disaster, his confident praise, in order to set up for saying that. For calling us to live with the same courage, the same strength, while we wait for the Lord. In the beginning of the psalm, there's no introduction. There's no uh, scene setting uh, for the prayer in verse 1. It's like there's no time. David, he calls on the living, true, and holy God, the Lord Yahweh. He says he's taken refuge in him. He's hiding under the Lord's protection because he can't defend himself. Without the Lord, he will be publicly shamed. And that would be an injustice. But he knows that the righteous Lord is concerned to see justice done. So he appeals to the Lord to show his righteousness by delivering him verse 2, he asks God to listen, to rescue immediately while there's still time. To be the rock he hides behind, the fortress he runs into. There's anguish and desperation in verses 1 and 2. The trouble he's in is almost all he sees as he runs to the Lord. But he expects God to answer. In verse 3, we, we hear the thought of who he prays to filling his mind god is his rock god is his fortress his refuge god's in the habit of leading and guiding him god's care for david doesn't depend on david's enthusiasm it depends on the lord's loyalty to his own name the lord's loyalty to his own reputation It's that the Lord is righteous and he will be seen to be righteous when he gets justice done for David. When he delivers David. And already verse 4, the Lord hasn't left David in uh, the net they hid. Verse 5, David continues to put himself completely in the Lord's hands. He's so sure the Lord will come through and deliver him that he describes it as if it already happens. You have redeemed me, rescued me. You are the faithful God. What do you mean when he says God is faithful? What's God faithful to? I kind of said already, he's faithful to himself. He's true to who he is, his name. He is righteous and he can be relied on to act righteously. He's the God who redeemed Israel from Egypt, and He can be relied on to redeem all who call on Him. So David prays desperately but confidently. It's an enormous privilege to get to call on God as Father and to know He cares. Uh, Christians don't pray like others pray. You know, uh, others may pray with a vague hope that the universe or or, or some dis- disinterested daddy might just come through on the thing they ask for. We pray to God, our Father, who is true and righteous and reliable. He is the God over all, and He is committed to His children. It's an enormous privilege to get to pray to God, our Father, knowing He cares. So David prays desperately, but confidently. He lived among people who looked elsewhere, though. Israelites who gave up on, on the Lord, who looked to other gods. They acted as if God is not faithful. As if the Lord is untrue and unrighteous and unreliable. They turned from the living, true and holy God to Worthless idols. John, isn't it? Verse six, David hates them. He hates them because what they're saying of what they're saying about the Lord whom he loves and trusts. Because when they go to worthless idols, it's as if they they yell, The Lord is not faithful. The Lord is untrue, he's unrighteous, he's unreliable. And he hates what they're saying about God. He hates them for saying it about the Lord whom he loves and trusts. He hates them for the influence they have on others who will follow them into trusting also the worthless idols. That's a different sinking feeling, isn't it? To the one I talked about earlier. The sinking feeling when the gospel is described as bad news, when it's replaced by some other much better good news, the sorrow for people who themselves are living, are missing out on what's truly good, the frustration and defensiveness for the, for the reputation of Jesus our Savior, the concern that others not be taken in by a gospel, uh, by a much better good news, which is no good news at all. David hears what their loyalty to worthless idols, says about the living, true, and holy God. But he will not follow them. He declares his intention. He trusts in the Lord, verse 6, and only the Lord, not those worthless idols. Then verses 7 to to 8, we hear him praise the Lord who answered. He says he'll rejoice, he'll go on rejoicing and delighting in the Lord's steadfast love, his hesed, his committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love, which has surfaced in the Lord seeing his affliction and suffering, knowing his crushing distress, not handing him over to be locked up by his enemy, but putting him in an open space. The Lord has answered his prayer. He has kept him from capture. The Lord has given him room to move. So he delights and rejoices in the Lord's committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love. We follow David through his experience of anguish, prayer, followed by confident praise. Verse 9, he, the cries begin again. I, said, I think it's a replay rather than a, a, a relapse. Uh, this time David begins, but he begins further back at the very beginning. He he tells more of the ups and downs of his prayer during the trauma. Verse nine, he says, "Be gracious to me, O Lord." But then he describes his distress. In the first run through, we simply heard him cry for help and protection. This time, he slows down to speak about his experience to God. I, I think that's helpful. It's helpful particularly when we don't know what to ask. To know that we can simply speak our experience to God. I I know God knows. David knows God knows what's happening. But he speaks to God what is happening. How he sees it. How he feels in the midst of it. David cries to God who graciously and generously helps he says why he needs that help. He's not just in difficulty; he, it's not just difficult. It's traumatic what he faces, distress that drains him. Look at the words: it's just, distress that drains him emotionally and physically. For he felt from the inside out and the outside in, his eye, soul, body, sorrow draining a life out of him, groaning, and that takes years off him. Strength failing, bones weakening. It's misery. Verse 10, it's because of his iniquity. That whenever iniquity is, it's people who are against him, not the righteous God who judges. Verse 11, enemies are against him. They're against him, but he's not talking physical danger primarily. He's talking shame, disgrace, reproach. And what makes it worse is that Even his neighbors and his acquaintances, acquaintances, the ones he thought were his friends, they're avoiding him. He's dead to them. He's like a broken piece of pottery thrown out as garbage. Everyone is either opposing him or abandoning him. So he's wrung out with a little laugh, physically, emotionally exhausted, alone. He has nothing and no one to hold on to except the Lord who he's asked to be gracious. And still he definitely trusts in the Lord. The slander doesn't define him. He speaks truth to God before and then asks God's acts. He says to God, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Whatever else is true about his situation, God is in control. The Lord is his God. David trusts in him, not worthless idols. So the one whose friends have hid their faces from him says to the living, true, and holy God, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. He's longing for the covenant blessing of knowing God's face turned towards him to bless him, to act in generous love towards him. The heart of David's trauma has been the reproach, the shame, the disgrace his enemies have attempted to put on him. So he says to the Lord, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. He adds, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak instantly against the righteous in pride and contempt. If we're unsure earlier about whether uh, David deserved the shame because of his iniqui- iniquity. It's clear here: the shame they attempt to put on him isn't true. So he's asking God to silence their lips. through the emotional and physical trauma he keeps trusting in the Lord his God and God comes through God has come through earlier in the psalm we heard it and the the anguished prayer followed by the confident praise, here again verses 7 to 8 pictured God's care and his rescue as taking David from a tight space into the spacious verses 19 to 22 expands that and, and it's David praising God for being brought out of a besieged city into God's own presence. Verse 19 begins with general praise. Praising God for how good he always is to all his people. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind, publicly. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men, you store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. It's general praise to God who is always good to all his people. He has been generously good to them. He has been their refuge, their rock, their fortress. He has been with them and hidden them from, the, from people's plots. He's sheltered them from uh, words spoken against them. And David praises God that he is always good to all his people. And then praises, him, praises God for being good to him in this one situation. Verse 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. He knows God has marvelously and generously acted in committed and loyal and faithful and steadfast love. When I was in a besieged city, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. It did look like he was alone in the middle of the trauma. Some part of him thought God had left him. Some part of him thought God wasn't there to care for him. But the Lord heard his pleas. The Lord heard him cry for mercy. The Lord came through. The Lord delivered David And so we reach verse 23 knowing David speaks as someone who knows what it's like to be distressed and traumatized. He speaks as someone who trusted the Lord when his enemies, adversaries, neighbors, acquaintances, friends were against him. He speaks as someone who has entrusted his spirit to the Lord in the middle of the trauma which shook him to his physical and emotional core speaks as someone who has seen the Lord come through on his promises. God, who is always good to all his people, has been good to David, who speaks this to us. He says, verse 23, love the Lord. Love the Lord, all you committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast ones. Love the Lord with your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, strength. Whatever threat you're under, whatever pressure you face to leave him and follow worthless idols, no matter how weak and vulnerable you feel, how much shame you face from those who distrust our Father, know this, the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. He keeps his people. He silences lying lips which speak in pride against them. The truth will come out. So be strong. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Draw confidence and persistence and determination and courage from what you know about the God you trust. Expect Him to strengthen you and give you courage. Expect to wait. Jesus did. Uh, he anticipated his death. Uh, as he anticipated his death and as he hung on the cross and suffered, there was distress that drained him emotionally and physically. Grief that he felt from the inside out and from the outside in, sorrow, groaning, his strength failing, his bones weakening, accused by his enemies, abandoned by his friends. On the cross, wrung out, and with little left, physically and emotionally exhausted, alone, his last words before he died were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, verse 5. At the end, he prayed with confidence, in his father God. His father did not rescue him from death, but his father did rescue him. He raised him just as he said. He silenced his accusers just as he said. He exalted him to his right hand in heaven just as he said. And when he returns, every eye will see him and every knee will bow. There will be no shame. God our Father has wondrously shown his committed, loyal, faithful, steadfast love to his Son. God who is always good to all his people has been good to his Son. Hold on to that truth. Hold on to that truth as you follow him. It may feel weird and difficult and even somewhat traumatic to find that following him means that you're seen as being against human thriving. How do we cope when even our friends are starting to think that we're the bad guys? Well, the same way Jesus did when he was mocked by people who were convinced that God and good were against him. And trust yourself to God. We needn't be surprised when going on all in with Jesus means people who think the gospel is bad news think we are bad news. Think living and sharing God's gospel makes us the bad guys. In his first letter, the Apostle Peter hints, I think, at verse 5 of Psalm 31. He encourages believers who suffer to entrust their souls to a faithful creator. I read 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial, at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will, will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How do we cope? when even friends are beginning to think we're the bad guys when being seen as one of Jesus' people brings shame well, by committing ourselves to God by refusing to be surprised or confused by it by pressing on with the clear out of confidence and the joy that comes from knowing God is true and righteous and reliable By seeing beyond what's happening in these days to what will certainly happen when Christ returns. By continuing to do good as God reveals it. By calling out to him as our refuge, our rock, our fortress, our protection while we wait. Trusting him to come through on everything he has promised. Let's pray. Father, please do keep before us the goodness of following our Savior and committing ourselves to you, in trusting you that you are the good creator, the loving Savior. Father, we ask that particularly if and when we are insulted for the name of Jesus, we would keep clinging to you we would as he did continue to entrust ourselves to you our creator while laying down our lives to please and honor you and laying down our lives to do good to what, towards one another towards those who are like us, towards those who are unlike us, towards those who don't even like us. Fellow, please strengthen us for these things while we await the return of your Son. We ask it in Him. Amen.